This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Father Richard Rohr. I wasn't quite sure what to call Father Rohr, but he said, please just call me Richard. Richard is a Franciscan priest and prolific author. Sounds True recently released a six-part audio learning series with Richard entitled The Art of Letting Go, The Wisdom of St. Francis, in which Richard explores the life and teachings of this beloved figure, and offers ways we can incorporate his wisdom in our lives. In this Insights at the Edge episode, Richard and I spoke about the relevance of St. Francis in today's world, what he calls a spirituality of subtraction, Jesus' teachings on non-duality, and what is genuine contemplation. Here's my conversation with Father Richard Rohr. Richard, to begin with, I'd love to meet you, the person, when you were a teenager, Mm. and you were somehow drawn to join the Franciscan order. What was happening inside of you, and what forces were happening in your life that such an event would happen? Wow. Let's see if I can go back there. I'm 66 now, so that's some years ago. But, uh, you know, I was uh, what we would call in the Catholic Church a pre-Vatican II Catholic. That was the great council that tried to reform the church, update the church in the early 1960s. I was born in the early 40s, so grew up very much in what we would call the old church, where we didn't even have the distinctions of liberal and conservative. We were all happily conservative together. It wasn't the angry conservatism you have today. Um, and it was a, a somewhat protected, romantic world of Kansas. Uh, and I do think, as a very little boy, I think I had experiences that probably some people would call God experiences, spiritual experiences. I don't mean to make them overly, uh, you know, uh, ideal, but I knew there was a bigger world. I knew there was more than business as usual that everybody was involved in. So in that time, if you were in the the Catholic ghetto that I grew up in, the only way you could act that out was to somehow be a, a priest or, or a religious, as we call it, a, a, a friar was the Franciscan term. Um, and wouldn't you know it, in the eighth grade, a brown-robed Franciscan with his lovely sandals and uh, picturesque romantic appearance uh, came and talked in our classroom. And uh, I got the address from him of the Franciscans. Uh, At that time, the province was in Cincinnati. And wrote off to them and started corresponding. And I know today this is unthinkable, but I actually went to to the minor seminary, high school seminary, at the age of 14. Hmm. Um, But in the 50s, in that secure world, we grew up much quicker at... It was a much more boundaried, identified world. 
So it's a decision I've never regretted. I, I've had a wonderful life. But as I so, told someone the other day, in many ways I had to grow up backwards. That I had the strong identity, structure, belief system, which which made me rather secure rather early in, in many ways. But then the 60s came after I was already uh, you know, in vows uh, as a young Franciscan. And then I had to do my searching, experimenting, uh, learning, what does this all really mean, you know? But it held my feet to the fire, and in my case, it worked. Because that larger world showed itself, and it gave me the security to enter into it. That's probably more than you wanted to know. But no, no, actually, no. I, I want to know a little bit more. When, oh, okay. when you mentioned that this mm-hmm. brown-robed Franciscan came mm-hmm. to the classroom, mm-hmm. what was it that you saw in that person that touched you? Well, I should say, I had just read a small, admittedly romanticized biography of St. Francis called The Perfect Joy of St. Francis. And, you know, I think every young person wants to be happy. I had read this life of someone who was a happy saint, who wasn't dour or morbid or moralistic. Uh, So seeing... Someone who represented that costume, I think, uh, visuals are so important when you're young to to personify the the idealized image or the the self you want to be. So I, I'm sure I projected a lot onto this man, although he happened to be a, a grand human being. And the two came together: the mm-hmm. life I had just read and this concrete person who who might just personify it. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think? in St. Francis's life and message is really relevant for us today, outside of the romanticism, as you call it. What what is the actual pith, the core of it, that is relevant for us now? I think probably the the most relevant piece is his universalism, his, his ecology, which didn't just include the earth and the animals, but people beyond Christianity and beyond Catholicism, that his his vision was not a tribal vision. It was it was a vision that even included the non-humans, <laughs> and that's why the church made him the patron of ecology. But by non-humans, you mean animals and elements uh, of the. I'm tr- how far how far are we going to take? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he he addressed Sister Wind, Brother Fire, uh, uh, Brother Sun, Sister Moon. It was even the, the physical uh, and vegetative universe that uh-huh. that was part of the mystery of God for him. Now, you know, so much of our history, we call that pantheism. <laughs> now we've refined our language, we call it panentheism, that he was able, as all mystics are, to see God in all things. And um, that seeing is probably what we desperately need if we're going to survive as six billion people Mm -hmm. on this one planet. Mm -hmm. And especially when you see the rising fundamentalism between the religions. Mm -hmm. Uh, So not just on the earth level, but on the religion, dialogical trust level. Mm -hmm. How does that come up for you in your work? I mean, you're clearly identified as a Franciscan, so someone could say that that Mm. is a form of... It's a tribe. Yeah, it's a tribe. You're Uh, part of this, uh you know, brown-robed tribe, Mm -hmm. but yet you're communicating a universal perspective. You know, people like Dalai Lama and Mother Teresa, two of the enlightened ones of our time, 
both said very similar things, that you need to be grounded or rooted or accountable in one place. And in fact, that going deep in one place leads you to that deeper spot where you find the universal truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's true. The most mature spiritual people I've met are accountable to one system, one vocabulary, and they let it take them all the way. They, they don't use it to hide behind. They use it to lead them. And I would, I hope Catholic Christianity and Franciscanism have been that in my own life. They, uh, it's allowed me to be very critical of those very things, and yet I wouldn't for a moment say that it wasn't that worldview that held me long enough in one place so I could find what the words really meant mm-hmm. <laughs> or what the doctrines were really pointing to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I feel if I would leave that, I could only become an individualist. <laughs> and I'm not interested in... Uh, be, I want to be a part of history, society. I want to have access and make connections with other groups. To me, that's important. That What God is doing... God is doing through limited social groupings and not just isolated, unaccountable individuals, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in addition to universalism, what do you think is important for us to appreciate about the living wisdom of St. Francis? Uh, his, his understanding of downward mobility Okay. <laughs> that um, preceded our E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful. He was saying that already in the 13th century, but that he did it in a happy way. It wasn't a moralistic, threatening, demanding, you got to do this, uh, or you're going to destroy the earth way, but just, this is enough. I, I know he used a word that to us is not contemporary in this sense, poverty. Lady Poverty, his love affair with Lady Poverty. Um, He even had to make that beautiful uh, and positive. But it's clear to me that with the population growth that's going to increase in this century, we all have to learn some form of downward mobility and doing it happily. Not the enforced equality of, of communism, but some kind of invitation to what I called uh, recently falling upwards. It is a falling, and yet it doesn't feel like a loss. I think that's, in terms of his practice, he taught the contemplative mind. Because, as you know, that's what we're doing in contemplation. We're, we're letting go of our attachment to our own ideas, feelings, mm-hmm. worldviews, and so forth. He, he did it almost in an outer way. But all I can assume is his many days alone in the forest and in the cave, he was doing that in an inner way, too, learning how to let go of his own preferences. Because if you don't, as you know, do it in your mind, you you can't do it in action. Mm -hmm. Are you finding that there's a different level of receptivity to downward mobility now, sort of post our current economic super challenging times? Yes, there's an openness to it verbally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when it comes to actual decisions to, you know, 
move our lifestyle down, to lessen our carbon footprint, as we say now. I think most of us are still finding it pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, Once you've grown used to a certain level, boy, it's hard to go backwards, what mm-hmm. feels like backwards. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what I, I hope I, I, I can teach is that that there's something better. If if you don't find the something better, which for me would be inner God experience, your soul, your inner life, use whatever word you want. But if there isn't a, a, a cushion to fall into, something that holds you, names you, grounds you, loves you, uh, you won't do it, <laughs> just ideologically. Now, there's a certain amount of the population that is ideological, just the, the moral... Uh, fortitude that's needed they can call upon you know but that's a small percentage Mm -hmm. most of us need something better or we won't let go of what we think we have or Mm -hmm. what we think we need Mm -hmm. what about the idea that of course i want that inner resource and i've touched that but why do i have to let go of the outer comforts of my life can't i have both Well, uh, you know, I I think of the clear disjunctive, one of the few very clear ones that Jesus made. He said, you cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon was an Aramaic word for this attachment to the world of things. So I think it has to do with attachment. I certainly enjoy plenty of creature comforts and have learned to, to, uh, you know, grow used to them, I'm afraid. Uh, So I guess I'm having both, so who am I to talk about it? (laughs) But I do know that when they are denied me, or when the the convenience is not there, I, I, over the years, have grown in my ability to live without them. I, I hope I've grown in some kind of detachment from them. So if you are attached to them, I think it is a problem, because you will spend your life trying to serve God and mammon. And if that attachment to creature comforts is too high, it normally will block the spiritual journey. Uh, But it's a matter of degree. Mm -hmm. It sounds like what you're talking about is also having one's priorities clear. That's good. The sense of having clear priorities. That's a good way to say it, a positive way to say it, yeah. That those have to be very clear, and they have to be Uh (laughs) re-chosen almost daily. Uh, What's really important in my life right now, you know? I mean, I have to do this flying around, uh, missing flights and cancellations and weather. I, I have to, in the morning, before I set out to the airport, decide, okay, what's the important thing today? Now, I'd like to get there on time. It'd be convenient and helpful for the other party and for me. But the most important thing is this, uh, maybe, to be human, to be in union with God, to be loving, to accept reality in its present form. If I can set that priority straight, then I can keep my peace, even when the flight is delayed three hours. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. Uh, Yeah. It's still that initial irritation. Darn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. It's a matter of, of clarifying per- priorities. If I set out in the, the day, angry, irritated, driven toward success, however I've defined outer success, 
then I'm just dang mad at that three-hour delay. And my mind will look for someone to, to blame the poor girl at the checkout desk. I, I hope I don't take it out on her. But, you know, I can see my mind wanting to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you talk about downward mobility, or I know there are other phrases that you use, like the art of subtraction. Spirituality of subtraction. Yes. Yeah, the uh-huh. spirituality of subtraction. What I think of isn't so much even subtracting outer things, but what I need to subtract internally, like what I need to let go of, whether it's ideas or positions. or. And I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about that. What is the spirituality of subtraction? Not, not so much in terms of I'm going to clean out my closet yeah. and give away the clothes that don't yeah. fit me, but yeah. internally, what am I letting go of? Well, you're pointing to the heart of the matter. You know, it's amazing how externalized certainly Christianity has been, that that it's been concerned largely with sexual sins, external behavior. But the real demons are these inner demons of, of avarice, ambition, greed, narcissism, superiority, uh, elitism, And it's amazing how we've allowed ourselves, our people, to live comfortably with these inner attitudes of of various kinds of spiritual greed, our spiritual consumerism, as some have called it, as long as the outer behavior didn't go too far, you know, we sort of tolerated it. It was okay. So you're, you're right on. That's what we have to see. And you know what? You can't measure it. You can't fault people for it. I I don't know how ambitious you are. So we've let popes and and bishops get away with massive pride, arrogance, and ambition, as long as the external self was celibate, perhaps. You Mm -hmm. understand? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the level of consciousness that so much of the world is at now sees through that. And we're recognizing it's the soul, the inner choice for life that really matters. And uh, I hope we're going to look less and less at external roles, formulas, rituals, costumes, as defining your level of of awareness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, in your own life, what have been challenging subtractions? Not outer ones, but inner mm-hmm. ones. Well, you know, first of all, being the children of farm people from Kansas, I never expected this degree of a well-knownness. And there was certainly a point where I was flattered by it, enamored with it, soon attached to it. Mm-hmm. And I could recognize that in myself when, when some people perhaps would not kiss up to me. They didn't know uh, anything about me. And I would feel that voice inside taking a little offense. Don't they know who I am? Don't they know who I am? Or wanting to even uh, give them my credentials or my name or something like that. And there I saw that demon was still firmly in place. So uh, uh, the people at the staff have heard me say this. I actually ask God to give me one humiliation a day that someone does not meet my needs, Uh kiss up to me, as I put it, uh, and then I have to watch my reaction to that. Maybe I haven't earned the right to talk about it. Uh, 
because I haven't suffered a lot, you know? <laughs> Most of my life has gone ten times better than I ever expected it. My learning about suffering has mostly been in solidarity, in friendship, mm. in visitation of the poor of the third world, of oppressed people. I was jail chaplain in Albuquerque for 14 years. It was more friendship and solidarity with other people in hospitals and jails in third world countries who have suffered hmm. that taught me anything I, I might have had to learn about letting go or, or suffering. My life has been fairly easy. I did have a cancer scare in 91 where I was given six months to live, and, and there I think I had to face my own death. Hmm. Uh, and that was a good learning. That was, a, a, I think, a necessary part of my journey to really think in my uh, 40s at that point that my life was probably over. Did you really? I mean, it was the, the, you just had a for a matter. Yeah. Still, I that's had, six months. That's plenty of time <laughs> to discover quite a lot. Well, it didn't last even that long. That's okay. why I can't take that much credit. It was malignant melanoma. They operated on me. They took out some of my lymph nodes and found that it had not moved through my body as they thought it surely would have. So it was only a few weeks where I thought, okay, it's, okay. it's probably over. And what did you mm -hmm. discover, though, in that few-week period? You know, first of all, that I wasn't afraid, and I was happy for that, because I've always preached that God is not someone to be afraid of. I think people raised in organized Christianity who've received so many threats about hell and God is going to punish you, this whole reward punishment system. I think an awful lot of Christians are afraid of God. They don't even realize it. They take it for granted. You know? And I'd always preached that that was not true. That was not my inner experience of God. So when I, when I thought death was near, my first response was not fear of dying. And I was so glad to know that about myself. It was sadness that, oh, darn it, this thing called life is over already, you know? And uh, I thought I'd get longer to whatever, to do more, to, to experience more people. Uh, so it was sadness, deep sadness. And especially when I'd see the sadness in my parents' eyes, my friends' eyes, uh, then I'd, I'd lose it, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> to see. Uh, but that was the main learning. Uh, I hope I'm not afraid of God. Now, there's an interesting assumption in what you're saying, which is that your feeling is that when you die, you will be with God. Yes, of course, I come from the Christian worldview of eternal life, that, that the, the goal of life now, not later, but now, is union with God. So that's my definition of salvation. Whenever you live, in conscious union or friendship with God, you are saved. <laughs> it's not a technique. It's not a formula. It's not a belonging system. It's an experience. And uh, it's heaven all the way to heaven. It's hell all the way to hell. Hell would be a state of separation, false autonomy. But, um, yeah, as a Christian, I would be a believer in eternal life. We've named it as if it's a geographical place. Even the previous pope said, when will Catholics realize heaven and hell are not geographic places, but they're states of consciousness? Mm -hmm. And most Catholics are surprised that Pope John Paul II said that. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you said whenever we're with God in a state of consciousness... Living in conscious union with God. Loving conscious union. We're saved. We're we're Mm -hmm. saved from what? What are we saved from? Well, I'm I'm trying to use the language that most Christians have taken for granted. I don't like it that much myself. Uh, uh, But Jesus does in the Gospels, when people enter into this vulnerable trust with him and with the moment, he will say again and again, your faith has saved you. I think the Eastern word would be enlightenment or awareness or you are awakened. You, you are aware of, of the truth, of the big truth. But you're right. The English word saved, it implies a, a negative state. You can just say that negative state is unawareness. Or, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. You're one of the only Christian teachers I know who uses terms like non-duality. And I know that you have a new book, The Naked Now, in which you're exploring what would non-duality mean to a Christian. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Okay. Um, it's, it's true on several levels. First of all, let me point out, so maybe Christians listening to this won't think I'm coming from some new space. The classic description of the spiritual journey said there were three stages. The purgative, early purgation from the ego, to use our language now. The middle journey, which was the journey of illumination, the illuminative way. And the last third of the journey was called the unitive way, where you've overcome this separateness from God and the separateness from yourself. So we had this language all along. Jesus' great line of unitive consciousness in the 10th chapter of John's Gospel is, I and the Father are one. So that's the highest level of uh, non-duality, where you actually have overcome the split between yourself and God. Now, for me, that's the very meaning of the Christ mystery. You know, I always have to tell uh, Christians, Christ is not Jesus' last name. The Christ mystery, and this is said in the prologue to John's Gospel, in Colossians, Ephesians, the first letter of John, the Christ existed from all eternity. The Christ is whenever the spiritual and the human coexist. You could say... The Christ began with the Big Bang, (laughs) when God decided to materialize and not just be pure spirit, but take on form. That's the Christ, you see. And in that sense, all religions have been seeking the Christ. Mm -hmm. We, in the Christian tradition, believe that in a moment of time when history was ready for it, that Christ consciousness became incarnate, that's what Christmas means for us, became incarnate in one human being, so we could fall in love with it, so we could see it and touch it, as John's letter says. Uh, Because you can't fall in love with the concept in, in Christian way of thinking. That union between the self and God, between matter and spirit, I'm convinced, cannot be accessed, cannot be believed, Like for all practical purposes, most Christians believe, not in the Christ mystery, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine at the same time, and they don't cancel one another out. Mm -hmm. They can both be true. A seeming contradiction is not a contradiction. Because we couldn't be non-dual, 
with Jesus. Mm -hmm. For all practical purposes, Jesus, for most Christians, is fully divine. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. They haven't struggled with the real paradox. No, that's theism, to believe in a supreme being. Christianity is believing that spirit and matter coexist in one place. We couldn't resolve it in him because we couldn't resolve it in ourselves. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There has to be a likeness between the seer and the seen. Mm -hmm. So on the practical level, what you have to teach people is to receive their own experiences Mm non-dually, that you don't eliminate the mysterious, the problematic, the negative, that which I do not yet understand, which most people do very quickly eliminate it as not true because I don't understand it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how can you deal with God, who is mystery itself? That's why I think a lot of our people have not gone very far. So on the practical level, it's teaching people contemplation, meditation, the mind that does not divide the field of the moment, but receives the field of the moment as it is, light and darkness, good and bad, the part I understand, the part I don't understand. Then you can accept the same paradox in yourself. (laughs) I become a non-dual seer. I can then see non-duality in everybody else, and and I don't need to separate it or torture it or eliminate it or hate it or deny it, you see. So it's two sides. First of all, non-duality is a way of Accessing the moment, uh, that's called contemplation. The goal, for a Christian at least, would be to see that that's the highest level of seeing, which allows you to see the real meaning of the Christ, which allows you finally to believe that I and the Father could be one Mm -hmm. and are one. But without that legwork ahead of time, (laughs) overcoming the split within yourself, you normally just can't possibly, in my experience, overcome the split between yourself and the divine. Now, would you say that it's fair to say that you experience yourself as divine and human? That's right. That's your own experience of yourself. That's That's right. That there's a part of me that is just so good and... That and now I don't feel embarrassed to say that. You know, a part of me that wants to love and heal and renew and and would never want to hurt anybody. <laughs> it's just where does this come from? I don't. I know I didn't develop it or work for it. It's my soul. It's we would say the divine indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This part of me that has always said yes to love, to God, to myself, and to others. And I don't know where this radical yes comes from. That's my divine part. That is in communion already with everything. But then what coexists with it is this nasty, petty self that I don't even want to talk about. The the thoughts I will have of, of judgment and of dismissal and of irritation right after I've given a wonderful keynote address on the contemplative mind. I'll go to the airport again and and be irritated with the first five people I meet, you know. And I say, God, I'm a phony. Uh, And yet it's, it's humility and patience with that very humanity. I don't hate it anymore as much as I once did, Mm -hmm. if at all. 
I can weep over it, say, that's Richard, and this is the Richard that God loves for some reason. So I, at my age, I, I think I've met both my divinity and my humanity, and they do coexist in me. Yeah. And the non-duality is to accept that that's the way it is. There's no opposition there. That's right. It's not just uh, reconciling it. Forgiving reality is not reconciling reality, where you hold the tensions and say, I can live with it. But you actually accept it as the nature of the beast, the nature of of what is, uh, and that this is okay. Uh, You actually learn to love, as Francis did, the leper, the poor one, the the excluded one, uh, because they're the most visible form of this suffering. <laughs> they're the most visible forms of of this overcoming. So yeah, I think it becomes an entire set of eyes and a new kind of heart that makes you not want to just avoid handicapped people, wounded people, gay people, poor people, anybody that other groups choose to exclude. You don't waste time doing that anymore. It's, it's, that's what's destroyed the world in, in my way of thinking. I'm curious for you to say a little bit more about that because I was touched when you said that you haven't had that much suffering in your own yeah. life and yet you've sat with lots of suffering yeah. people. Yeah. And what I notice being with you, sitting with you here, is your capacity to hold the suffering of other people. And I notice that because I feel like I could share my own suffering and it oh, would be welcome. I, I mean, I just, so. I feel that in the yeah. field of who you yeah. are. And what I'm curious about is how do you think in your own life, first of all, you were even drawn? Why, why sit yeah. with suffering people? Where did that come from? You know, let's psychologize it to begin with. I had a childhood that was idyllic. I was my mother's favorite. My brothers and sisters tease me about that. I had a very dear, simple, uneducated father, a German farmer, uh, who accepted me always exactly as I was, even though I was so different than him. I was the, even as a little boy, I loved ideas and words, and, and he loved the practical. But so he, I know it had to be a leap for him to enter into my world. Um, my mother was very tactile when we were children, a lot of kissing and hugging. So just on that level, I think I got a lot of empathy, sympathy, a connection, even tactile connection. So I got my narcissistic fix, as I love to call it. Then put on top of that, admittedly, it was ideology at first, but making Jesus my, my first teacher, and I saw how he was always going toward the poor, the handicapped, the excluded, the outsider, the non-Jew, even though he was happily a Jew. Um, so I learned it intellectually. Then I learned it emotionally from Francis, that this is the heart of the matter for Franciscanism, was identifying with the underclass, not the upper class. After that, it was just one after the other concrete meetings of suffering people in hospitals, in jails, and in poor countries. People who'd had very, very hard lives. And again and again were, were not always unhappy people, but they'd found life at a deeper level. 
So I guess I was given a certain capacity. I don't think I'm naturally loving at all. <laughs> I'm naturally narcissistic. But I, I was given enough capacity to connect, to feel, to empathize that they got inside of me. They got um, under my skin, as we, I say, and changed me to some degree. In what way were you changed? That my glib theologies, explanations, and certitudes were again and again found not to be true. You know, all you need is one exception. I mentioned gay people a minute ago. I mean, all you need to meet is one exception to the rule, and you know the rule is not true. <laughs> the wonderful thing about Jesus and Francis for me is that they didn't have any trouble with the exceptions. Whereas what organized religion, it seems to me, had become was an obsession with order, so-called order. It usually became imposed order. And this love of order made an awful lot of the clergy, uh, an awful lot of Christians, anal retentive people, not empathetic people, who could never go outside their own comfort zone. So again and again, I'd meet people, a holy Hindu, a holy Buddhist, a holy Jew. I mean, some of the Jewish people I've met in my life were just so altruistic, so so philanthropic, so such good listeners who can care. And, and I said, wow, they don't have my salvation theory at all. And look at them. The proof was in the pudding. So my ideological uh, presuppositions just continued to fall apart by the concrete. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you can stay in the platonic world of ideas and maintain your worldviews for a long time against all evidence to the contrary. But I think Franciscanism gave us a love of the concrete instead of the ideological. That, that the concrete is the doorway to the universal. Whereas most religion gets involved with its so-called universals, mm -hmm. and it never gets back to the concrete. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and tries to force all the concretes the concrete uh, gay person and, and Hindu person back into their universals. And it never works. Mm -hmm. Never works. Now that, for me, is the meaning of incarnation, that word we Christians use so much, uh, the enfleshment of God in Christ, mm -hmm. that even the great mystery had to become concrete, specific, visible, touchable. And he became, we believe, the way to God. <laughs> that the concrete is the way to the universal. That, for me, is the heart of, of Franciscan philosophy mm -hmm. and, and, I think, Christian philosophy. Mm -hmm. But, boy, most Christians aren't there. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what you mean by that, the concrete, meaning the actual person who needs help, yes. the actual situation yeah. that's calling you forward? A specific situation that you have to be present to it, meet it on its own terms, without labeling, without categorizing without resolving, you know, mm -hmm. it is what it is. So when you can meet things as specifics instead of universals, mm -hmm. women, put all of, there's another woman, you understand? Mm -hmm. And this is the way I understand women. No, this is this woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that takes a certain degree of, of letting go, which is what I'm talking about here. Um, Letting go of your judgments. Of, of your judgments. Yeah. Your, the comfort that ideology gives us. Yeah. Uh, the comfort that I don't have to deal with this specific woman. 
because I put her in a category. I've put her in, you know, and I know what all women are like. Yeah. And, uh, so I don't have to hear her, be present to her, respect her, really. Yeah. You don't have to respect concretes, specifics, this individual person or event, when you've got your universal answers for everything. Now, I want to cycle back to something that you said, because you mentioned this word contemplation. Mm-hmm. And what I thought I heard you say is that genuine contemplation is is somehow... I'll use my own language, and then maybe you can help me understand it in your Christian language. Sure. But that genuine contemplation is somehow resting in this non-dual space. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean in, in the Christian experience? You know, I believe Jesus himself was a non-dual teacher. When he makes statements like, my father's sun shines on the good and the bad, his rain falls on the just and the unjust. That's classic non-dual teaching. I think he's largely been interpreted by the Greco-Roman Western mind, which is a good mind. It's very rational, clear. It makes disjunctives, which is the, the function of words. So early on, you already see in the desert fathers and mothers, you see in the mysticism of, of some of John's gospel, some of Paul's writings, that they discovered they needed a different bit of software, to use our language, an alternative consciousness to deal with the paradox of, of this Christ mystery. <laughs> um, and I believe that was systematically taught as late as the 13th, uh, maybe even 14th centuries, although it's only in the monasteries then, it's become, you know, uh, an elite uh, vision for the few, I'm afraid. Which is probably why the Reformation happened, because by the 15th, 16th century, Europe is entirely dualistic in its thinking. Mm. We're not even teaching it in the monasteries anymore. It was Thomas Merton who almost single-handedly exposed by his writings in the 50s and the 60s that the West no longer understood its own tradition. We Catholics use the word contemplation, but he told his own contemplative community in Kentucky, you're not contemplatives, you're just introverts, Mm -hmm. which was very insulting for them, you know. Uh, But he was right. They were saying prayers all day, God bless them, heroically so with a mind that was filled with analysis, judgment, critique, uh, we'd lost the ancient tradition. And I think that's why so many Christians in our time have been reading Hindu authors and Buddhist authors because we say, my God, that's what we once had. When people like Eckhart Tolle came along, for example, you know, I got all these letters because I was supportive, very supportive, of his teaching, and people calling me New Age, and I sold out to the East, or whatever. Yeah. You know? I said, you don't even know the older tradition. So we're living in a marvelous time. We're starting with Merton, but now in many schools, certainly Thomas Keating right here in, in uh, Colorado, uh, we're rediscovering the Christian contemplative, non-dualistic, mystical mind. 
uh, we don't know how to be mystics anymore because we think we're going to get there by analyzing things yeah. <laughs> or finding some kind of verbal truth or intellectual conclusion. That's a terrible trap. And why Christianity has produced so much fundamentalism yeah. and so much war and so much violence. I mean, I have to say this to Christian groups. I say, you know, the two world wars happened in the little continent <laughs> that we Catholics had in the bag for 1,500 years. <laughs> we built our cathedrals everywhere. We had everybody in our club. And and the two world wars did not appear in deep, dark, pagan Africa. <laughs> but people who had, in my impression, an awful lot of unprocessed pain, anger, repressed fear, and, and hatred. And it all exploded twice in 50 years. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Pretty sad. But that's what happens when, when religion is no longer doing its job, when it's just a belonging system yeah. instead of a transformational system. Again, then, I'll just ask it in a different way, though. Given that backdrop... In your view today, seeing as the mystic see, what is genuine contemplation to you? Well, well I'd have to p talk about it at different stages. The purgative, the illuminative, the unitive. Okay. <laughs> uh, most of us, and God works with this, never get beyond the purgative. It's just a matter of this rugged work <laughs> of doing your your prayer time, your sit where you recognize your obsessive thoughts, your compulsive thoughts, your paranoid thoughts, your negative feelings, and practice letting go of them, releasing them, not identifying with them. That's purgative, early stage, necessary contemplation. You can't do a nonstop flight to the, the unitive okay. consciousness. Yeah. The middle path is that... Uh, increasing encounter and struggle between darkness and light, where you face your own phoniness, you see your own mixed motives, you recognize your prejudices, but now out in the social world, in the larger world, not just, not just your thoughts and feelings, but how you're maybe a part of structured oppression, <laughs> structured hatred. Your economic, political, social world starts also being called into question. That's the period of larger and larger illumination. Many people never move to that social level. That's why we called our center in Albuquerque the Center for Action and Contemplation. Mm -hmm. I feel contemplation that does not lead to social critique, to larger world awareness, is still early stage purgative, which is fine. Mm -hmm. purgative contemplation, but it, it remains narcissistic, or becomes narcissistic if you stay there too long, just dealing with your own thoughts and feelings and never getting to, to a larger love, mm -hmm. a larger reconciliation. Then contemplation at the unitive stage, and as you know, I mean, uh, Christianity would believe in a personal God. What I mean by that is not a human God, but that God is a center of relationality, vulnerability, mm. Mm. intimacy, give and take, forgiveness, apology, acceptance, healing. Uh, just like two lovers, you can, you can negotiate mm. the relationship. You could work with it. 
that's the good meaning of personhood. There's no dead ends. I can always work with it because there's a great lover on the other side. It's not falling in love with a force or an idea. So at the third stage, I think there's really the capacity to encounter for what Buber would call the I-thou relationship, or Emmanuel Levinas would call the face of the other, even the face of the divine other, as it were. That's an anthropomorphism, I know. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, our mystics, our Catholic Christian mystics, would speak of falling in love with God, you know, and being loved by God, talking to God on the friendship level. That's the unitive level that is the goal. And so it's already heaven now. You don't need to go to heaven. You're, you're living in that dialogical acceptance, mutual acceptance now. That's beautiful. To conclude, Richard, I have a kind of strange request, and if, if it doesn't work out, I'm willing to take the risk, right. which is I'm wondering, Father Richard Rohr, if you could give our listeners a blessing. Oh, my. Well, isn't that humble of you? Let me say something, first of all. For someone to ask for a blessing actually means you already received it. <laughs> you, you don't ask for something that hasn't begun to happen but that you would be humble enough and trustful enough to ask for it. Especially, assuming you're not a Catholic Christian, normally we only ask or expect blessings from our own group, but that you would trust that I, as some kind of outsider, could have something to give you. Um, Thank you. So you've received it already, but may you know the height and the depth. May you know the length and the breadth. May you know the love that surpasses knowledge. May you be healed by the love that encompasses all things. And know that God, love, has already blessed you. You are indeed a blessed one of God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, so much. You're welcome. Thanks for coming here to Sounds True, for recording with us, and for the conversation, and for your heart's generosity. Thank you. My privilege. Thank you. Richard Rohr has created with Sounds True a new learning course called The Art of Letting Go, Living the Wisdom of St. Francis. And for more information, soundstrue.com, many voices one journey. Thanks for listening.